0: It's shocking. Islam has been basically entirely banned in the entire um, region, which I did not, I'm not going to even try to pronounce. Zinjing. Uh, was the region. Uh, and sorry, one second. Yeah. Uh, yeah? Ready to go? No, because I'm in the middle of recording. I'm actually in the middle of a, of a sentence. Yeah.
1: Hello, you're me.
0: Sorry.
2: Uh, Hello, and welcome to yet another episode of the Problem with Reading Podcast. Uh, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Sam. And this is Season 2! Woo! Insert Special Victims Unit sound effect here. Yes. It's bigger, it's badder, and it's less maniacally focused on one single book um and that's probably not going to be the best for our intellectual growth uh but maybe more fun a little bit quicker mm-hmm. you know my family listens to this sometimes and every single time the feedback is wow that was a good podcast except for the part where you talked about mcintyre just do the is, like, all of it, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> yes Um, so we are, we are moving in that direction. Uh, we've got some, some media of the social variety in the works, Facebook, maybe Twitter. We'll have Sam run the Twitter. That'll be good for his brain.
1: I feel so Uh, used by the corporate machine. I didn't know about this. So Sam already
2: agreed to be our, our social media meister. Um, and if we have links, we'll put them in the description, uh, when we have them uh, also planning a lot of special topics like marvel college the eastern orthodox versus the true mother church divide et- et no cetera. bias there at all Whoa. Um, Whoa. Uh, sam what are you looking forward to in season two
0: what am i looking forward to in season two is being here dutifully every single week
2: absolutely for the that rest of the right. season i can't think of...
0: I'm <laughs> across the pond <laughs>
1: We'll we uh, uh, we do... appreciate your sacrifice. <laughs> you're, you're willing to get up at three o'clock in the morning. every single <laughs> That's the plan. And my no,
2: roommate will appreciate it too. What we oh, need geez. to do is, is get Sam to um, record like dispatches from, from England. And then he, and, and we can just like insert him at the end or at the beginning.
1: <gasps> that would be brilliant. Like have like a wartime correspondence sort of thing. Like with sound effects in the background. <laughs> oh, that would be incredible.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You're you're reporting from the uh desiccated ruins of the Anglican church. I oh you,
0: <laughs> I mean I'll let you know how Descartes doing over there. Um yeah. considering that's what I'm gonna be studying. A lot oh, of Descartes. Boy. Why? And every because well, 'cause I'm taking Descartes. Why not? Descartes, Descartes everything Descartes. between everything between it's basically, you know, the you scholars modernity class. Uh huh. Yep. It's like that, but actually learning philosophy. So what I'm how, hearing about-
2: no, no, but we just read MacIntyre. What you're actually learning is just this bastardized, broken language <laughs> of individualism if necessarily the conclusion of nihilism. Like, that's
1: I what think you're...
0: That, I think that Kant brings something a little bit better than that.
1: Does he? Does th- he, though? I think does so. He probably, yeah, he probably does. Yeah that's, so, that's, yeah, that's fair.
2: So I was at the Chesterton Conference, and the overall winning Clara Hugh, which is a, uh, a short, badly written poem about... Um, Biographical figure uh, was um, the following: <clears throat> Kant, a savant, ain't
1: a saint. Ooh, whoa. Yep. I feel like that one deserves some snaps. You know, you gotta snap it out.
2: Okay. Um, so, so uh, we are on season two. We're doing articles. We got all that coming up. Um, but I just have one question for you guys. So we haven't talked in like
1: three weeks, four weeks. It's been a while. Um, I mean, I've been, been questioning your guys' existence at this point. I mean, I don't see you, and I'm not hearing from you. I, I don't know if you if you exist or not. Sam's going to find all about that with his Descartes class.
0: Well, you can't see me
1: right now. That's, that it's, is... I could just be an AI. Oh, Sam, yeah. are you sure of that? I could have some binoculars just staring at you right now. What? Sorry, man.
2: Okay. Um, well, uh, my, uh... <laughs> my... My question was that since I haven't had you guys to talk to, I've just been building up all this premium content, 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 content. And I have like, like at least three little stories um, to tell. Maybe we'll split them out. Maybe I'll just interrupt you at random points to, to, to stick it into this podcast. Um, but well, we
0: could just record them here and then stick them into future podcasts. So then we have good stories forever instead of mm. fizzling out in three weeks that's
2: true but see my life is just so exciting that i I know i'll i will always my life is a content generator like yeah i'm i I was born for this but but on that on that note uh um being born for this uh a man was was born to enjoy good brews uh steven what are you drinking right now
1: that Wow. Uh, yes, I knew that question was coming, but it, that that was a very roundabout way. Uh, right now, unfortunately, I am not drinking a brew. I am drinking some tea and honey uh, because I have a cold and have a sore throat. So that's uh, that's what's keeping me going this this podcast. Hey, Steven. Hey, Brevin. Have you ever heard of the turn of phrase, brew a pot of tea, brew a cup of tea? Oh, that is, that is a good point. I guess now, yes. I, whenever I hear brew, I just think, oh, beer. Mm, mm. Very disappointed. Uh, I, Sam, as you should be. what are you yeah? drinking?
0: I am drinking a, um, a Two Town Cider House Pacific Pineapple Cider. Ooh,
2: those are yeah. good. It's they are thing. delightful. It's, I it's, do like that
0: they're They're cheap. They're local. They're decently tasty. So that's what we're drinking right now. And it has no alcohol in it. I mean, it's got, okay, 5%. So basically no alcohol. Pretty much. That's like yeah.
2: medium. That's medium strong. Um, I, I just saw a hilarious thing here. Um, see, this is me, my life, generating content. Um, a, a little uh, fly flew into my desk fan, uh, got blown through it, looked very painful, and then immediately got sucked back through it again. Oh. And now I don't see it anymore.
1: Oh, um, that poor fly. Oh. <laughs>
2: It was it was pretty great. Um but as for what am I drinking right now? Pretty I am great. drinking some uh smooth smooth Evan Williams bourbon. Um I found Ooh. a 1.75 liter handle at the store. Um, and I know that's redundant, but I just learned what the difference between a fifth and a handle is, so that's very exciting for me. Uh and oh. it was way cheaper than it usually is, so I am I am pretty happy for more than one reason.
1: Actually, what is the difference
2: because I've I have not known this. Glad you asked. Uh, so a a handle is 1.5 uh, uh, liters, wait, 1.75 liters. And mm-hmm. a fifth is 750 milliliters or 0. 0.75. Oh, interesting. Um, and for some reason, there's not a common name for just a one liter, mm-hmm. which, or if there is, I didn't find it in my in my one Google search. My guess is because... I think
1: you call it a liter.
2: Well, but there has to be like a snappy name. Like okay like like you you've heard the fun phrase um <clears throat> oh wait dang it whenever there are four anglicans together there's always a fifth.
1: Hey, yeah. It fun. really
2: should be said about like the orthodox or 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 like a uh, actual fun congregation that's not dying out and is full of geriatric
1: apostates but you know oh, strong words wow really. <laughs> <laughs> Yes yes yeah, yes okay. So bitter about the anglicans leaving his church. Yeah. A snappy name for a one liter, so you mean like they have a snappy name for the two liter, namely the two liter? No, well, no, 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 like just a fifth or a handle are just the two things
2: that the two most sold alcohol sizes, I guess. And it might just be the divide between like casual cool drinkers and like straight up alcoholics is my guess. That's a good point.
1: But I have no idea. Or the fact that if you're just like buying in bulk, I mean, if it is cheaper, like, Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Whatever For the record, I do not have uh, have that, I'm not an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> Steven's like, so what do you call a five-liter jug of wine?
2: <laughs> uh, and where can I get one? Okay. Um, I mean so... we, we
0: talked about these. I was hanging out with my grandparents the other night. We were talking about different wine bottles. Have you seen the Solomon bottle? What's no, a Solomon what
2: No, explain. It's
0: I think 28 regular bottles of wine. Is yes! Snap, bottle.
2: That's awesome. Yeah.
0: It's, it's pretty incredible. You basically need a, like a hand truck to move it. And there's this crazy contraption that you need to pour it. And it's, it's pretty spectacular.
2: How are you not just at like a small barrel at that point?
0: Well, because you got to pour it. You can't pour it out of a barrel. You need to put it in the bottle.
2: Well, you can put a spigot in in a barrel. (gasps) What about wine was Mm -hmm. the original box wine. I just realized that. That's a really good point.
0: Yeah. Um, so what you're saying is that box wine is really the purest form of wine.
2: I think that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm hearing. Box wine. Okay. <laughs> 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 what a callback. We both did that at the same. Um, time. and speaking of of callbacks, let's jump right into our first article. And the callback we'll be making first is to Sam and, and mine um, and maybe Stevens, I forget, our high school days and when we when we all as young even jellyfish Kissed, dating goodbye oh, uh man. sam oh, we did about the yeah fallen joshua harris
0: fallen joshua harris yeah so this topic might be just a little bit over spoken right now but i found this article when the whole thing was going on and so i thought it was a very good response and a lot more thoughtful than what many people are saying this is the article wither in the evangelical purity culture thoughts on the legacy of a lost pastor by david french uh, I like David French. I've put a couple of his articles on here. Um, but this is a good one where he kind of walks through what who Joshua Harris is, for those who are not familiar with him, and then talks about what the impact of his actions is going to be. So first of all, Josh Harris, he explains who Josh Harris is. He was a bas- He's basically a mega popular evangelical author and pastor he, in his, I think it was early 20, 20s. He wrote the book "I Kiss Dating Goodbye," which became very popular in evangelical uh, youth circles, sold almost a million copies, and it was incredibly influential in the growth of purity culture. Now, lately, in the last couple of weeks, well, actually, backing up a little bit, about a year ago, Josh Harris came out and talked about how he was actually going; he was investigating whether the book had actually done had good results or whether there were some unintended consequences. He ended up releasing a documentary which in which he interviewed people who claimed to have been hurt by the contents of that book. Uh, the book basically claimed that individuals or high schoolers should not or Christian high school at the least should not date. It's the title, they should court, which basically is going on dates with the opposite sex but with parental supervision, parental approval at all times, parental supervision, uh, never kissing, never no no kind of any physical affection until wedding day and that was the whole end goal was that they would get married you would go on and have this perfectly happy marriage um, because your parents had guided you the whole time and you would never made any bad decisions so david french has a bit of experience with this culture with the purity culture Um, he was actually a youth pastor in 1998 for a brief brief period of time Uh, he was a youth pastor at an evangelical church where he came into the church in i think may early summer And the youth of the youth group had declared it no date 98, meaning inspired by this movement, they were not going to go on a single date. There was not going to be a single date in the entire youth group for the year. And French then goes through the motivations of this, the cultural motivations behind the purity movement. He talks about how parents, the parents of these kids grew up in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, Many of them came out of those years hurt by bad relationships, hurt by making poor decisions in those relationships, and they wanted something better for their children. As they told their kids these stories and gave them warnings against being hurt relationally, being hurt even sexually, the kids naturally took that up as an aim, as it almost being a cool thing to stay pure. The problem with this is that there was kind of a dark side to it. Uh, David French talks about, or he he uh, quotes Caitlin Beatty, another writer who has called this the sexual prosperity gospel. basically. A lot. One of the undercurrents of purity movement was that if you wait until marriage to have any kind of sexual relations, when you get into marriage, it'll be better. It'll you won't be tarnished or dirty from all those past partners you've had. Therefore, coming into marriage, it will just be so much better, the best sex in the world, and you're going to have a happier, healthier marriage. And she points out how that's a very Questionable message. It's it's got lots of undercurrents with the prosperity gospel, and it's really not not consistent with the gospel. There's no purity that comes from forgiveness in Christ from that, because you, if you were to sin sexually, that's a stain that you carry with yourself forever. The David French talks about how many people use this logic to say that if they were if they made one mistake, if they slipped up once, then they were stained. They might as well fully indulge. And that was something that we've seen in evangelical cultures coming out of the 1990s, out of this purity movement, is that as young people slip up, they tend to just leave the church entirely, leave the church and not try to obtain any kind of moral standing. French ends by calling for an end to legalism. He basically says that we're supposed to embrace the forgiveness found in Christ instead of trying to to legalize sexuality in our youth. He ends the article by saying how Harris repented of his legalism. Uh, which he did when he made that film, he apologized for this book hurting people. He ended up actually having the book pulled from, uh, pulled from the press and disavowing the ideas in it, saying that that is not what can build a sustainable um, marriage. The difficult thing is that over the, last, or over the last couple of weeks, Harris has also declared that, first of all, his marriage is ending. Him and his wife are separating, and he has left the church. He no longer believes in, or he no longer call himself a Christian. French's final words of the of the article are possibly the most poignant, the most harsh indictment of Harris, where he says that, quote, he's like an inadvertent arsonist who flees the burning house rather than helping fight the fire that he helped ignite. I'm sad to see him go, and I'm sadder still to see the pain he caused when he was present.
1: It's uh, some strong rhetoric that he closes with, for sure.
0: Some, some very strong rhetoric. Uh, one thing I liked about this article, though, is that overall, it was pretty respectful of Harris. He has that strong indictment at the end, but up near the beginning, he actually mentions how Harris's statement of leaving the church contains a lot of integrity, is that as he realized that he no longer believes in the things of the church, instead of trying to shoehorn them and make them work for him, he just realized that he wanted to respect that tradition and left. Um, I've seen a lot of people, a lot of responses have been criticizing Harris for his divorce and criticizing him for the way he went about that. And criticizing him for all the hurt that he's done, but without giving him any way that he could have possibly helped to rebuild those things.
2: Yeah, that's one thing that I wanted to comment on, um, is that French does a pretty good job um, of not necessarily walking the line, but of just doing a, a good job writing about it. Whereas you sort of see, in general, at least two sides to this thing, and also most things that are controversial on the internet. Mm-hmm. Where, um, in, in, in this case, you know, it's like the evangelical sharks saying that, like, oh, he never knew Christ really, he was always a faker, yes. he was just in it for the money, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side, you have, you know, the woke folks, the uh, ex-evangelicals saying that, um, you know josh is is the he's the fullness of evangelical christianity we have to burn it all down his failure proves that sexual mores should be given up on entirely except for the thoroughly mm-hmm. modern ones um and and, and french does a good job of, of of doing neither of the stupid things so good yep. good on him
1: yeah uh, it one of the one of the articles i read on this um kind of traced out some of uh harris's kind of his moves in life and i i I really do kind of feel sorry for him. Uh, he he was kind of groomed from an early young age, or from an early age, to become a pastor. Um, it mm-hmm. sounds like he became a pastor without ever getting a like seminary degree or anything. And yeah. then you know, like he rose to wild popularity, wild fame. The eyes of most of the Christian, uh, especially evangelical movement, were on him. Pretty much his entire life after after he wrote this book.
0: Well, he was incredibly popular back in high school. Him and his brother were actually pretty well known and were partially, they, they were, as far as I've heard, known mm-hmm. as some of the most brilliant people in the homeschooling community. Oh, wow. And they were kind of, they kind of helped make homeschooling legitimate to the rest of the world as they, you know, were accomplishing real world tasks. Um, or I don't know exactly the details of it, but they had several academic accomplishments in high school that kind of really helped legitimize the homeschooling movement.
2: Oh my God. I just realized this. Um, Oh my God. Yes, it is. Did you guys read the book? Do hard things. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same Harris. Yes. It's it's Harris's younger brothers. They were literally groomed all of them to be like,
0: which younger brothers,
2: just Joshua Harris's two younger brothers or two of them. I don't know how many there are Alex and Brett, Alex and Brett Harris yeah wow geez groomed groomed and they're like disney child stars basically yeah. it and it sounds like
1: jargon. at this point the the hot take on the article i was reading was that he never really got the chance to question uh he never really got the chance to wrestle with a lot of these issues he was just kind of repeating a lot of the stuff that he was taught and he mm-hmm. clearly brilliantly i mean this thing sold like hotcakes for a reason uh yeah. but he never had a chance to really wrestle with a lot of these issues and so mm-hmm. i think there was a big scandal in his church um, there was some Yeah, Yeah. and some people started saying, like, yeah, maybe you should actually go to, like, seminary and, you know, get qualified, and he did, and I think I'm, this is my own hot take, I'm guessing at the seminary, he realized that there was a lot in the Christian um, kind of narrative that he wasn't necessarily on board with, or he never really knew about, or, you know, any number of things, but that's, Mm -hmm. it sounds like that was where, that was the the real breaking point.
0: Because he stepped down shortly after that, I believe.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say it's also possible that he wasn't given access to the internet till he was 23. And that's really when the, the turning point started harsh, harsh, but fair. But, uh, two, two brief comments I want to make on this. Uh, first, um, I don't remember if it's the, the French article that makes this timeline. Um, but unless I miss my guess, I think Harris is actually sort of was towards the tail end of a big purity culture movement, or maybe the second wave of it. Hmm. Like, cause I yeah. remember high, in high school days, Joshua Harris was a big thing, but like purity balls were less of a thing and purity rings were, were a thing, but less of a thing. than I've read they were allegedly um, in the past. So it's just interesting to see him as sort of maybe the final gap, not necessarily the final guess, but one of the last big movements in a decades long struggle of evangelicals to define some kind of sexual ethic and and frame it in modern language.
0: Yeah, Thanks. so let's put this in timeline. I got the timeline a bit wrong. He wrote the book in two thousand three when he was, it came, or it was released in two thousand three and twenty one. Yeah, twenty
2: one at the time. Yeah. The one other thing, just to, to add a final um, tail end here, unless something unless someone else has something, there was also a a couple weeks back. I'm fairly certain I commented it commented on it on the podcast. Um, but a New York Times opinion piece talking about. I'm a person who I believe grew up in purity culture and then broke out, went the opposite direction and found both of them wanting in the end of Mm. um, found them both uh, without sufficient meaning generation qualities, maybe Um, both sort of legalistic, both very shallow, both very without. Um, both without metaphysics leaving their, their experiences mm-hmm. as much as one would experience in um, a metaphysical wasteland, uh, you could say. Mm. Um, now
1: that's a callback.
2: That is a callback. But all that to say, French doesn't necessarily provide a way forward. That's not his job in this article, obviously. Mm-hmm. I don't know where I was going with that. But anyway, it it's... uh Yeah, you know what? I, I'm just going to give up while I'm <laughs> somewhat ahead.
1: Uh, I guess... So something tertiary to this, um, kind of there's there was another big splash made a couple of days ago with uh, I think one of the Hillsong yep. uh, a leader or a band I leaders. This. Uh, apparently, he has apostatized as well. Um, and David French has showed up with an article about that too. Oh, I really? Who, who is it? Oh, I don't know. I don't. I don't follow Hill. Marty something Samson? I want to say his last name was Samson. Pretty sure his Marty first
2: Samson. name was Marty. Because oh, I was Samson, like, then. like. Who would name their child Marty like that's just mean so I remembered it
1: yeah uh, maybe they were huge fans of uh, back to the future um, <laughs> but yeah apparently he fell away although i I, I feel somewhat bad because I, I really don't like kind of glorifying in in the anyone's fall or anything I, I think there's something quite sad about it um uh-huh. but I recall looking at his objections uh, apparently he posted it was, a, it was on an Instagram poster or something like that and it was just this very, very cookie cutter, just like problems that like any intro to theology text would just immediately address and, and do away with. Um, Yeah. And it, it just very, very shallow issues that he apparently thought was like a big deal and that no one was talking about. And I just remember thinking like, dude, like literally any branch of Christianity, you want to go Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, all of them have spent so much time discussing these really like, t- certainly tricky issues, but, like, this is not, this is not caused as, th- this should not cause as much consternation as you claim right now. Like, you, if you had read a little bit more, maybe, maybe you'd be better off. Uh, so, what I'm hearing is,
2: uh, his parents homeschool him for, like, 36, 42 years, and finally gave him access to the internet just a couple weeks ago. He found an atheist YouTube channel, and it just shattered his faith, um, is, is what I'm pretty sure the, the, the. Uh, line of events there was, um, but speaking of of faith, uh, Stephen, I believe you have an article about the uh, the the faith that many atheists uh, must uh, confirm. Are they?
1: if they are to be true atheists. I do indeed. Nice transition. Um, So today's article uh, features uh, David Bentley Hart again, who I think I've brought up uh, once or twice before. I I have something for uh, philosophers that have three names apparently in our name, David. Uh, So uh, this this individual is quickly climbing uh, the ranks of my favorite theologians. um, And he has an article uh, called God, Gods, and Fairies which discusses the frequently made claim by popular atheists concerning the nature of atheism, namely that belief in God is akin to belief in fairies or other mythical beings. Uh, a slightly more highbrow, but no less annoying claim is that there is no difference between not believing in God and not believing in Zeus, often coined in the catchy phrase, everyone's an atheist, we just go one God further. Ha 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 ha. Um, Hart identifies this mistake as a problem of ontology, namely the fact that the one making this claim does not understand what is meant by the term God. Quote, Admittedly, I suppose, it is possible to mistake the word God for the name of some discrete object that might or might not be found within the fold of nature, if one just happens to be more or less ignorant of the entire history of theistic belief. But really, the distinction between God, meaning the one God who is the transcendent source of all things, and any particular God, meaning one or another of the plurality of divine beings who inhabit the cosmos, is one that, in the Western tradition, goes back at least as far as Xenophanes. God is the uncreate, oh, end quote. God as the uncreated and transcendent versus God as, lowercase g, God or gods as creatures themselves is another way to look at it. Hart is firm that this distinction is, quote, merely in numbering between monotheism and polytheism, as though the issue were simply how many divine entities one thinks there are. Rather, it is a distinction between two qualitatively incommensurable kinds of reality belonging to two wholly disparate conceptual orders, end quote. He transitions to make the unique and quite brilliant move that belief in the gods is a matter of scientific belief. Quote, fairies and gods, if they exist, occupy something of the same conceptual space as organic cells, photons, and the force of gravity. And so the sciences might perhaps have something to say about them if a proper medium is for investigating them could be found. Belief or disbelief in fairies or gods could never be validated by philosophical arguments made from first principles. The existence or non-existence of Zeus is not a matter that can be intelligibly discussed in the, in the categories of modal logic or metaphysics, any more than the existence of tree frogs could be. If he is there at all, one must go on an expedition to find him, End quote. Uh, Whereas God alone can be investigated by the field of theology or philosophy or more mystical experiences. Uh, he ultimately dismisses an atheism that does not account for this. Not to say that he doesn't believe atheism can exist or what have you. I know elsewhere he holds Nietzsche up in high regards precisely because he knew exactly what he was rejecting. But from what I understand, this article is likely uh, a precursor to his book, The Experience of God, Being, Consciousness, and Bliss, uh, which is described as the one theology book atheists should read by journalist and atheist Oliver Berkman, uh, that at least if you do not believe, you will know precisely what you do not believe in. Um, So I really like this article. I think he does a very good job. Uh, kind of differentiating between kind of the, the upper uh, case G God and the lower case G God. Although I think I heard Thomas Aquinas rolling around in his grave when uh, uh, Hart said that you can't uh, make an argument from first principles uh, on the angels, but uh, that's probably besides the point.
0: No, I like that. And that's definitely an argument that I think that we've all heard before. Yeah. Is, is that, you know, God's just, you know, a mythical creature because it's, a lot easier to attack that version of God. And so if you turn him into that, it's very, very easy to make an argument against it. Yeah. Um,
1: well, it's an easy trap to fall into from a theistic perspective in that a lot of times, a lot of the the rote teleological or cosmological arguments were given, um, especially kind of at a more young age, is what well, God explains the existence of the universe. Yes. So or God is, you know, like, look at nature around you. How can God not exist? Which are actually pretty uh, candidly rejects and says, "Like no, that's called a demiurge. That's called a an architect huh. being. That is not God. Now he doesn't reject God as creator, but he says that God, God is in essence like the the being of all beings. He is that from which all being comes. Um, without him, there is no being. Uh, so he is not a being. He is kind of being itself. Interesting.
0: Uh, so, what would he say to natural revelation?
1: I I'm guessing he would say that's arguing from first principles and he would possibly nod in approval towards it. Possibly not. Um, Okay. That, that one, I I would need to read more David Bentley Hart to, to know uh, for sure uh, what he would think about that. Uh, As I interject here, I would propose that much in the manner that
2: we refer to David Foster Wallace as DFW, um, David Bentley Hart is now DBH. uh, So we can add him to the taxonomy that we have here. Perfect. Um, so uh blah, 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 blah. I also very uh, much enjoyed this article. You actually read the passage that I wanted to quote talking about um putting Zeus in the sort of taxonomy of fairies and in the natural world sort of one level of, above humans that you know if he exists we have to go on an expedition to go find him um but you'll never have a expedition that can uh explore adequately in the natural world you know the the ontological basis for mm-hmm. uh, all for all being, that is purely the realm of um, theology, logic, metaphysics, etc. But also the 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 conception of of uh, gods and fairies um, as a, and there being a sharp divide between that and God uh, makes the world much more open um, and much more potentially magical, which is a, a fun concept and appeals to my English major side. You guys sort of already touched on the, the main uh, thought that I had about this article, which is that uh, his his uh, DBH's diagnosis regarding atheists and, you know, sort of the smug oh, you believe in the, in your sky god uh, whatever. I believe the preferred term
1: term is sky wizard.
2: Sky wizard, yes. You're sky
1: wizard. You're, mm. you're,
2: sky wizard. Um, uh, you're sky wizard with sexual hang-ups to tie it back to the previous <laughs> thing. Um, but to as you've already touched on, it, it's not exactly as if the typical Christian quote-unquote uh, let's say grassroot discourse is Elevated to warrant the kind of uh, highbrow snobbery that DBH lays out here, the the there's there's just been so much lost in terms of um, lost or maybe never found. Let's not be n- nostalgic for a golden age of perfect catechesis, but theological discourse is just so decayed and never encountered, even in you know institutions of higher learning, like in the theology classes, we never even touched on things like, say, the five proofs for God. And then working from there, you know, the classical arguments for the specific divine revelation of the God of the Old Testament and New, we just all started on this weird assumption of evangelical, you know, I don't want to say sky God, but sky God, and then debated how much of a social justice warrior he was. Like, that was the content of the theology class at the the university that I went to.
0: And I think that part of it is that, the evangelical culture, well, again, not to be so critical because I'm just, I've done nothing but criticize them today, but it really lives into that where you focus a lot more on personal experience and experiencing this being, and that becomes far less provable. You can't use theology, and actually a lot some of them outright reject using the proofs for God and theology to find God, saying, no, you need to actually just defer to something deeper, the pers- your personal experience the irony hmm. yeah anyway sorry continue i interrupted you no, no no
2: that was i i i have um rants about comic about uh the comment section of various blogs but that's <laughs> neither here nor there but i, I mean I, just I didn't even hear that. well yeah yeah okay sure so so just talking about the christian discourse is just not terribly well constructed um i had a an article published recently talking about uh fertility rates in various countries and sort of where the world is heading in terms of population, whether we're heading towards overpopulation or underpopulation, I thought it was a pretty careful review, fairly nonpartisan, fairly even handed, but somehow like there's 220 comments and they're all talking about like French libido and like people complaining that their anti-Muslim comments got deleted. Um, <laughs> so now, it, it, yeah. Yeah.
0: Now I'd like to let the listeners know that you just so subtly Drop that. He just had an article published. Yes, yeah, was it published, Revan? First things,
1: yes. Published in first, first things. Uh, first uh things. yes, in the the small journal first things. Yeah. He's now a published
2: author. <laughs> However, online, so it it takes away some of the the steam, but you know, but there's not still, all of it. Not 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 all of it. No, heaven it's forbid. All of the steam. Humble brag. So, just as a final note, like I remember first encountering through a professor who you know, told me, hey, go look at, you know, Anselm's uh, proofs for the existence of God and look at Aquinas's proofs for the existence of God. And just, you know, making this argument that was totally unknown to me, that like, there are these people called Thomists, and they've been around for a very long time. And one of the core things of their thought and uh, and argumentation is that actually you can prove God's existence, or God, you know, God as ultimate reality, um, from which, you know, the uncaused cause whatever and then you can work down to this specifics later but that you can prove that from logic and i was like what that's a thing that exists what is this madness and it's just so lost from the vocabulary that that could even be a possibility that it allows people to fall into this you know snide nihilism snide Mm -hmm. atheism um without considering the the full ramifications um that dbh Mm -hmm. brings out
1: very well in this article Anselm's ontological argument was what got me into philosophy I love Anselm he is such a great a good theologian
2: but don't oh. you think that the ontological argument is uh merely Just, word salad
1: yeah all it is is word salad shout out to uh, to our friend who runs the uh what what what's the the page called um, ontologically something means memes for uh I don't know
2: well there's a there's a ontologically dehydrated memes for saladated teen teens or something I don't know there's lots of great philosophy meme pages if you don't follow all of them go follow all of them um
0: i mean i just followed the meme pages well i mean i just followed the uh the brick philosophy page
1: oh yeah uh, i just started following Legos. that one yep yeah yep which speaking of pages to follow like favorite and subscribe uh our uh our new facebook page or what our new did. completely blank
2: facebook page that yes, we're, it's very blank we But it will. <laughs> Sam, do you need to read all of the things we put in the group chat?
1: I'm, ha- I'm working.
2: <laughs> so are we. Okay. So, but speaking of working, some people would very much uh, not like to work at all. In fact, they see work as drudgery and toil, uh, not ennobling, but in fact, um, 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 wage slavery as as the product not of just how the world works and, you know, the production of value for other human beings, but as a grave evil. And those people are socialists. And my article is, uh, when did everyone become a socialist in New York Magazine? It's rather long, but quite interesting look at sort of the social sphere of the uh, rip-roaring, unionizing, very active, fancy-dressing Democratic Socialist of America Socialites in New York City. It documents sort of the rise of these new socialists, uh, very, uh, at least in large part, highly educated, young New York folks is what the article focuses on, though it's only fair to note that the Democratic Socialists of America, the political party slash um, beer club, kind of unclear, uh, grew from 6,000 to uh, 56,000 in like two years since Trump was elected. So the I don't have a whole lot to say here, except that it should be vaguely required reading for, for people who just want to understand sort of one of the political, economic, social undercurrents of our current debate, especially if you're anywhere near Twitter, because these people are on Twitter. Um, m- most of them probably are the extremely online type. Um, and the article catalogs a couple different strains of socialism. You know, there's always sort of the the classic old timey union folks who, you know, they're electricians, their grandfathers were electricians and their great grandfathers, you know, ran the mafia and they care very deeply about unions and union, this union, that, and then there's sort of the Jacobin types, which are the, the intellectual magazine um, all about, you know, putting the rich to the guillotine. Um, they're much more about uh, talking about how class warfare rises above identity politics. They're just trying to get class consciousness to work in the United States hopefully they'll they'll continue to fail uh nicely. Um and then there's uh the intersectionality theorists who, you know, combine class and race and gender, sexuality, etc., much more focused on that angle. And then there's the most interesting strain, um, mostly because I vaguely keep track of them somewhat, um, which is dirtbag left, probably kind of a subset of the Jacobins in that they're not much about identity politics, very crass, very rude. Um, very nihilistic. Chapo Trap House is sort of the podcast for this crew. Um, it's quite amusing. They 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 do good um, uh, Call of Cthulhu campaigns. Actually, very very funny. Really? Um, no. Yes.
0: And they have good commentary on cults.
2: Yes. Uh, by by good Call of Cthulhu, I I mean they're they they like really lean into the like 1920s racism against Irish and Italians. Ooh. Um which is funny in modern context, probably was less funny then. Um, probably. But when they're talking about, you know, the Italians, you know, taking over stuff and, you know, summoning Catholic demon gods or whatever, it's, it's pretty funny. So all of these different strains, obviously having a much larger impact on the culture um, than they have in the past, especially with, it, with the democratic primary, these are very active people, very involved people. There's just uh, one final quote that I'll, end with here. I'm talking about how this group sort of came to um, rise to greater national prominence and that is a quote the most straightforward explanation for the socialist boom is fittingly a material one. Saddled with student debt and thrust into a shit post 2008 economy. Millennials were overeducated, downwardly mobile and financially insecure on top of everything the internet was making them feel bad and the planet was melting the precariat they called themselves end quote and we've talked a little bit about this group and sort of the material causes behind, um, different dissatisfactions and social pathologies. I'm vaguely partial to this argument from a weird, more right-wing angle. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's a good article. It's a good sort of deep dive. You meet some, some interesting characters, um, highly recommend the article, um, just on the writing standpoint and, uh, yeah, good stuff. I, I left you guys no inroads to comment. Um, no, Sam. I, I do have a comment.
1: Okay, yes. okay. <laughs>
0: um, well, my only comment is I, I want to apologize to all of our, the, the, the subset of our listeners.
2: Listener, were, listener.
0: Who, uh, sorry, our listener out of the three who listen to us because he is a, he or she, not discriminating here, is a diehard McIntyre fan for the Marxist stuff. And then just realized some disturbing news that we are not in fact Marxists.
1: Ooh, we're sorry about that. Yeah. Oh, I feel like we just led that person on. However, however, as my,
2: as our dear friend and former co-host on this podcast would say, socialism is too good an idea to be left to the left. Um, Ooh. So, ne'er give up hope. Maybe one day we'll circle back around to socialism of a more feudal type, which is the only proper kind, as we all know.
1: We may yet, Mr. Frodo. We may yet. <laughs> That was good.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: so just oh, to that one listener, just hang on. We'll get there. Steven, I can always count on you to like say that was a thing and make go. Uh, you,
1: you broke up on me again, but I'm I, for the impression I'm getting is you're counting, uh, counting on me to say something intelligent, uh, which will, I'll, I'll take my best stab at it. One of, one of the interesting things I've been percolating, this will uh, somewhat be related to my rant. I think um, the reaction it, it kind of you, you can hardly read an article anymore without Trump coming into it, especially if it comes uh, or if it's discussing politics at all. And this one is certainly no exception. Um, and apparently a lot of um, kind of the pushback uh, from both uh, Trump's admittedly disgusting uh, platform and also from the clear failure of the Democratic Party to beat this obviously disgusting platform uh it kind of resulted in socialism now this article did add nuance and say that like bernie sanders is getting onto the uh the stage even before the whole trump hullabaloo thing that is an indicator that there is a rising interest but i still find it so interesting that i, I suppose i find it ironic that that somebody who is so hated still dictates the, the the very the the decisions um that the people who hate him make and i i find that fairly disturbing honestly that like these these people that are clearly kind of jumping onto this more radical ideology are doing so partially in their own words they 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 credit trump to this um this disgusting human being who they don't or the the the, this person who they find so disgusting they give him credit for getting there it's just kind of this weird paradoxical um, sort of situation that I, I, I read in that. Sorry, that's another one where there's like no inroads. It's just a strange observation that so much of mm-hmm. our political sphere and people's very worldviews are getting dictated by this person. Love him or hate him, uh, they're allowing him to dictate their worldviews. I mean, on the positive side, just think
2: we are living through like 8 billion academic articles that are going to be written using Trump as a case study in like 50
1: years. That is true. Although yeah. with that, I just responded, you know, the whole, may you have an interesting life is viewed as a curse. I, I kind of agree with that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that I just want to know. live in the golden age of the mm. Cold War. That was a good time. Yeah, that back was, in when, the like, days. The, where the party everything... sort of worked.
1: Not true. Yeah, <laughs> true. The sort of worked because if we didn't, we'd get nuked. Maybe that's the real, guys, the real answer has been with us the entire time, the Saint Seraphim option. Oh. <gasps> and that's a callback uh speaking of
2: callbacks they do get really annoying sometimes and when things annoy you you want to rant
1: steven do you have a rant oh buddy oh boy do i have a rant um actually this is this is uh a relatively minor thing uh arguing with people on the internet uh i i frequent uh read it every so often, uh, mainly Our Christianity. Uh, actually recently I had stopped because I was getting so irritated. Uh, different articles will come on Our Christianity, and and um, several of them or two of them in particular uh, caught my eye. Now, I am by no means a hyper-conservative. I don't even consider myself conservative. Most of the time I consider myself moderate. Uh, but I I almost with people who kind of veer both far left and far right, I, I just enjoy kind of poking at them and seeing how far they'll go. And uh, in two of them, Ah, uh, one of them was on uh, the the ice uh, camps in the border, and the, another was on gun control. And and both yeah. of them, there was this uh, this fear. I think that that is the best way to describe it. Um, in some, I think in one case it was actual fear that this person, uh, this was on the gun control um debate, uh, and this person was saying that they lived in fear of a mass shooting. And I tried to say, well, you know, you actually studies have shown like they've they've done. You know, the numbers, they've crunched the numbers and you have a greater chance of getting hit by, by lightning than being victim in a mass shooting. So, you know, that's I understand that you're going through this, but under like just realistically speaking, you don't actually have to be afraid of for this. Um, and in the ice, I uh, think it was uh, concerning. They were using the analogy of concentration camps. And I, I said, like, look, that's that's very fear based rhetoric. Uh, they, they are, they're not concentration camps. They are horrible camps. and They need to be improved greatly, obviously, but they're not concentration camps. Uh, And in both cases, the sheer amount of fear rhetoric that is used is honestly kind of disturbing. Like people are actually legitimately afraid um, and that's allowing them to dictate or that that is allowing people to be dictated by their fear rather than by um, more rational discussion. Now, uh, someone may critique me and say, well, you know, there are some cases in which case people really should be afraid and that fear will dictate their actions because, you know, if you are afraid of getting hit by a bus, you will drive more carefully. If you are afraid of getting hit by lightning, you won't walk around a thunderstorm holding up a you know a metal rod or whatever. And to which I say, fair enough. But I see a lot of these instances of fear-based rhetoric kind of cropping into a lot of our political discussions, and it's 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 somewhat concerning. I'm somewhat afraid of that uh, of that fact. Paradoxical. Yep. That that's about all I got. Is quit using fear-based re- rhetoric and and think. Yeah. That's about that's about it. Yep.
2: Well, uh, speaking of of thinking um i read a great history book called uh king leopold's ghost recently and it's all about king leopold i think the first maybe the second at most of belgium and his uh fun murder garden in the congo so massive depopulation which you can read as forced labor lots of warfare just straight up murder Incredible resource theft and just cruelty on a nearly unimaginable scale. Um, the estimate runs like 10,000 or sorry, 10 million dead oh, um, on account of, of his policies. So basically a, a holocaust. Um, actually, more than one, one and a half. Um, and obviously, this isn't unique to the Congo in Africa or other colonized areas, uh, nor to Uh, Belgium being a perpetrator. Um, Belgium felt a brunt, the brunt of a lot of aggression in World War I um, from the Germans, for example, which actually historically has has given them some cover for their actions in the Congo. Um, uh, Not surprisingly, but maybe ironically. Um, um, I don't necessarily have a conclusion for this rant, but the book was a reminder of the deep and dark evil potential of humanity and how much we actively forget at any given time of um, what we've done um, as a species. Um, but we can use uh, this as a reminder of both sort of the, the depth and the specificity of evil that is possible, um, as well as the reminder, as Viktor Frankl said, that good and evil run in every human heart, um, and we should always watch for it. That's it. Sam!
0: Rant! Rant, um, kind of coming off of Stephen's rant a little bit, is we can't make every single conflict in the world, a, um, in, on the, in the political sphere at least, a life or death situation. It's not the greatest uh, human rights event of our time. But my question is, what if it is? Have I ranted before about the Uyghurs in China? I feel like I have, because it's an issue that I really care about. Um,
1: I'm not if sure I you have.
0: Okay, well, I should, because this is an issue that... It's popped up in a few journals. It's taken a little bit of notice on the press, but nothing's happening. Currently, China, there's, there's credible evidence to show that China is currently imprisoning about 1.2 million people in uh, Northeastern China. Uh, these people are of the ethnic group, the Uyghurs, which are Chinese Muslims. Uh, they are imprisoning them in re-education camps where people go in and come out renouncing their faith. Oh, jeez, it's. Shocking. Islam has been basically entirely banned in the entire um, region, which I did not, I'm not going to even try to pronounce, Zinjing uh, was the region. Uh, and, sorry, one second. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Ready to go? Uh, no, because I'm in the middle of recording.
1: No, you're not. You're coming
0: with us. I'm actually in the middle of a, of a sentence. Yeah.
1: Hello, viewers. It is me. Yeah.
0: Sorry. Basically, this is happening in the region of Xinjiang, which is in northeastern China. And I would argue to say, not to be dramatic, but it is possibly the greatest human rights crisis of our time, where they're bullying over, where they're bulldozing down thousand-year-old mosques, oh, um, forcing people in the concentra- into concentration well, into basic what well, are de facto concentration camps. The evidence for that is sketchy, and so I'm going to be upfront about that and say that it's not conc- conclusively proven. But when everybody comes, uh, these, all these people have been genetically cataloged. Basically, you get interviewed, they take all notes about your size, your blood type, your DNA, everything. And then, strangely enough, in Beijing and other urban areas it, in China, obtaining organ donations has been incredibly easy over the last five years. Like, far more than one would expect oh, for the number no. of registered donors. It's disturbing... And the United States is saying absolutely nothing.
1: Well, that's terrifying. So,
0: so that's my rant, is that it's, it's something that I've been following for a while. Um, it's, it's very, I, I don't even know, terrifying and concerning. And more concerning is the fact that the United States is doing absolutely nothing. Is that Trump has an opportunity to use this as a reason for his tariffs. And honestly, I think many people would support him in his tariffs, If he said if he just came out right out and said we're tariffing them because these human rights abuses, but he's never going to do that, and in reality the United States government isn't going to do anything about it, and that's just that's rant worthy, I think.
2: Yep. Lump that on top of the Hong Kong protests and the Chinese military massing at the border between China and Hong Kong. Yeah. Uh, Yep. Yep. Good times.
0: Something stuff's about to go down in China.
2: Well, hopefully not. not.
0: Or, um, well, well, if if not, why didn't it?
2: Yeah, it's fair. It's Nothing fair.
0: went down after Tiananmen Square, but yeah. anyway. Wow. Anyway, so I anyway. just want to say,
2: season two, everyone, welcome to season two, and Sam's uplifting rants. We can't let him go last. Is, is the thing? <laughs> yeah, <for>
1: real. But, <laughs> but yeah, he's t- way more. He's always than
2: like it. massive human rights. Everyone's gonna die. The Uyghurs, Hong Kong, everyone's gonna be wiped out. Tiananmen Square. Thank you, Sam.
0: Yeah, but see, half the time I have happy rants. And you guys yeah. are like, why are you so happy right now?
1: Yep, and... nope, I, I'm actually with you on this one, Sam. It, it is almost refreshing uh, in a weird sort of way to hear an angry rant from you.
0: Okay, I'm glad.
1: Just maybe we won't put you at the end next time because now we're all sick. Okay,
0: happy. well, I'll let you guys know whether it's going to be happy or angry beforehand. And you can begin beginning or end.
1: Excellent. There, yep, that's a plan.
0: Great.
2: Cool. Well, uh, speaking of, of plans, I think some other people uh, have have plans to to get to and go to, so we will be ending this first episode uh here. Uh, it has been a pleasure.
1: Um Nay and
2: Honor. Nay an honor. Nay an honor. Uh so for everyone here at the Problem with Reading Podcast, uh, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Sam. And we will see you next time. Adios. Ba-da-pa-ba-ba. See you too. well um, we'll find our, our opening bit somewhere somewhere in there I'm sure we'll say just like one or two snappy lines maybe they can't you know fit in so we have to just throw it to the beginning and cut out all all context
1: um, that's what we always bank
2: on that's what we always bank on um, but anyway. <clears throat>